You first. Good morning. <laughs> I've always, I've always wanted to do that. <clears throat> you know, as a preacher, you, you stand up to speak, and you can see that there's a little bit of anticipation on the part of people and want to know what it is you're going to have to say. And I've always wished that maybe you all would start the sermon. I, I've gotten past it, thank you, <laughs> but I don't believe that sermons are rightly supposed to be just a one-way communication. And you all do communicate, I don't know if you realize it, um, even with my impaired eyesight, you communicate with me and I I see it. I see it in body language. I see it in facial expressions when I can see your face. I see it in the way there is movement. There are all kinds of ways that you communicate. And so, without you saying a word, I often know whether or not, first of all, you're upset with what I'm saying. Because that is usually more visible than if you like what I'm saying. But I can tell sometimes, if you let it out, that you appreciate what I'm saying. And sometimes I can tell that when this sermon is over, I'm going to get an earful. Really. The reason that I wanted to show the video of the transfiguration is that it is a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. I don't intend to talk much about the transfiguration today. It'll come in later in the sermon. But I want you to understand that from that moment on, Jesus did not spend most of his attention on the crowds which came around. He turned his attention almost totally toward his closest followers, the apostles. He would give attention to the 72 that he also sent out, and he would give his attention to the 120 who followed him around from place to place. But the vast majority of his attention was given to the 12 apostles. And he is preparing them for the major event which was about to transpire in their lives. You say, well, wait a minute. Wasn't it happening to Jesus? Yes, it was. I mean, death is a pretty significant thing, right? How many of you think that if you die, it's a big deal to you? Wow, only a few of you. The rest of you don't care? Well, it's more important to the people around. Well, I, I think it's kind of equal importance. I've spent some time this week dealing with death. Kip does that for a living. Kip's a chaplain for hospice. And so he spends his time day after day dealing with people 
who are acutely aware that they are growing very near their death. Most of us lead our lives just kind of blissfully going on as though that's never going to happen to us. Death may happen to somebody else, but not me. I'm going to be like Enoch. I'm going to be like Elijah. I'm getting out of here without dying. Well, the odds are not in your favor. Is it a possibility? Well, of course it is. I, if, if your walk is like Enoch's walk, and if your life is like Elijah's, it may well be that God just gives you a free pass and you don't have to spend any time in jail. You've got your get-out-of-jail card. The thing of it is, the get-out-of-jail card is called resurrection, and you don't get it unless you're in jail. You don't get raised from the dead unless you're dead. How many of you are aware of that? Okay. So when you think about the prospect of your own resurrection, just understand that it means that first, you're going to die. And we know what it is to have people we love die. And it is an earth-shattering event. And from the time of the transfiguration on through the rest of the Gospel of Mark until you get to chapter 16. Jesus gives His attention primarily to the apostles and He's trying to prepare them for the single most important set of events in their lives. Those events will be, first, His death. Secondly, His resurrection. And third, the start of the church. Time is short. His focus is now toward Jerusalem, where these events are going to take place. He wants them to know, with absolutely no doubt, what it means for Him to be the Messiah. And that's what we're going to be talking about for two or three weeks. And he wants for them to know what's going to take for them to be his followers. And we're going to deal with that in the next set of sermons. Today we're going to take a look at 21 verses in chapter 9 of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to start with verse 30. We'll read through verse 50. But let me just tell you what's going on here. Jesus is going to confront our misunderstandings because we have lots of them, okay? So I want you to brace yourself. If you have thought that the sermons through Mark up until now have been a challenge for you to hear and to digest and then to live, they're going to be more of a challenge from this point on. That's just a warning, just a disclaimer. And I'm serious in what I'm about to say. Listen to me very carefully. If you can't handle the challenge, now is the time for you to leave. Because if you stick around, 
God's Word is going to challenge you. The question is not whether or not that challenge is going to come. The question is, what are you going to do once you are challenged? And the place where Jesus starts is with misunderstandings. So, let's read a few verses, then talk, and then read a few more verses, and then talk, you know, you get the drift. Verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And He did not want anyone to know, for He was teaching His disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He is killed, after three days He will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask Him. Huh. Has anybody ever said something to you, and you weren't quite sure what it meant, and you hesitated to ask what it means? I, there's a part of you that, that, that says, well, I, 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 think, I think I know what it means, but I'm just really not sure. And yet we, we think that if we dare ask, we may find out that what we suspect is actually what it means. Now, I don't know what it was the apostles thought Jesus meant when He says, I'm going to be killed. I would think that that's pretty clear. There's a commercial on nowadays. It's trying to sell you some insurance, a homeowner's insurance to protect you against the not just the possibility, but the fact that some things around your house are going to die. A lady has a knocker ring on the, on the doorbell, and, and she answers the door, and there is death, the specter death, with his scythe and his long black robes, and he's looking really kind of ghostly. And she says, oh, no, I'm not ready yet. <laughs> That's the way most of us are. And, and then he makes it clear that he's coming inside. And when he gets inside, he walks into the kitchen to her refrigerator and looks at it. She says, no! And he takes a look at some of the other appliances and she says, no! She says, you're killing me! Uh, let's say that differently. Jesus says, I'm going to be killed! Number one misunderstanding of the Jewish people as a whole. And it's a misunderstanding of the Jewish people as a whole because it came from their rabbis. Look at it. We'll put it up on screen. Like most of the rabbis who had taught them, the apostles misunderstood what would happen to the Messiah. They the rabbis taught, and almost all the people believed that the Messiah was going to conquer. He wasn't going to die. He was going to kill. Having studied and taught a lot of the Old Testament, 
for quite a few years. I can tell you, I, I know the passages where they get the idea that the Messiah is going to be nothing other than a conquering king. However, the majority of the passage dealing passages dealing with the Messiah are not about a conquering king. They are about a suffering servant. They're about someone who, if you read through Isaiah 53, we are told how he's going to suffer. We are told the manner of his death. Even to this day, if you have the opportunity to talk to a person who has grown up Jewish or was converted to Judaism, and you want to talk to them about the Messiah, if you take them to Isaiah 53, it blows their mind because they are not ready for a Messiah for whom there is even the possibility that he would die, much less the fact. You know something? There are things that each of us have been taught as we've grown up about lots of things in life. And we've come to the place where we, we believe them. We've bought into it. We, that, man, that's where we are. And along comes somebody who tells us something that contradicts what we have grown up thinking, and we can't handle it. You know the kinds of things that I'm talking about? I, sometimes people get the idea that if they just be a bully, everybody else is going to cave into them. That's not the way that it works. Will many people cave in? Absolutely. Will some of them even fall down? Yes. But you know what? In the end, somebody is going to stand up to the bully and the bully will lose. But if you've grown up thinking that the bully always wins, then you have two choices. Either be the bully or be the one who is being bullied. Unless, of course, you listen when somebody says, it's not okay to be a bully. And you don't have to stand under being bullied. You can stand up and not accept it. You can stand up. You don't necessarily have to fight back. Sometimes that's necessary. But you don't have to take being bullied. You know what the number one tool that the rabbis had was? They were in charge. We are raised generally with the idea that if a person is in charge, we believe and we don't question. There were very few Jews who questioned what the rabbis had to say about what the Messiah would be and how he would be treated, what he would do, and the apostles had bought into it. Now, do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the rabbis were bad people. The best of people sometimes get it wrong. I know. I sometimes get it wrong. 
you knew that, didn't you? Sometimes you get it wrong. And sometimes people like me who preach and teach, having the best intentions, wanting to know what God's Word says and wanting to communicate uh, what God's Word says to other people, sometimes we misunderstand. And the rabbis simply misunderstood. They did not connect all the dots. They connected some of them. You ever see one of those, uh, those books that we usually give to kids about connecting the dots? You ever see a picture where they connected the dots to a certain point and then stopped? Maybe dad or mom told them they had to go clean their room or whatever it was, and they never finished that? Or have you ever seen one of the pictures where they started to connect the dots, but they got off track and, and they connected two dots wrongly? It kind of messes up the picture, doesn't it? That's what happened with the rabbis. They didn't connect all the dots. And some of the dots they connected were not connected in the proper sequence. So the picture for the rabbis became distorted. And the picture which they presented to the people who sat in front of them day after day and week after week became distorted. And Jesus confronted the misunderstandings. I'm going to die. I'm under the impression that the apostles did not have as much difficulty grasping the concept of the resurrection because Jesus had been raising people from the dead. The primary challenge they faced was they didn't think that the Messiah could die. What is it that you think about the Messiah that may not be accurate, that maybe you've connected the dots wrongly, maybe you haven't finished the picture, or maybe you've connected a couple of dots in the wrong sequence, and so the picture that is in your mind of who Jesus is, is not accurate. You and I, all of us, need to be open, not just to the possibility, but to the fact that no one of us totally understands all of Scripture. Let's go on. And they came to Capernaum. Capernaum was a, a town really close to the Sea of Galilee. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child, put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus' followers, and especially the apostles, misunderstood their relationships with Jesus and with each other. (laughs) 
this morning while I was getting ready, I was listening to uh, CBS Sunday Morning. I, I like that program. I don't know why. I just do. It's typically a little bit gen- more gentle than the usual news program. And they had um, a section on photographs. There's a new book of photographs coming out about Muhammad Ali. Now, when you and I think about Muhammad Ali, we think of somebody who was big and brash, proud, maybe even arrogant, depending upon the situation. But these photographers saw an altogether different side of Muhammad Ali. While there were photographs of Muhammad Ali knocking out some of his opponents, most of the photographs were taken in private times in uh, Pennsylvania. And the photographs that you see of Ali, man, I had to turn my head when I heard that he was quiet and he was humble. What? Muhammad Ali used to talk about himself as being the greatest. I don't agree with Muhammad Ali's beliefs because he was Muslim. And Islam is not compatible with what I read in the scriptures. But here's something that I learned. While in public, Muhammad Ali may have been brash and proud and boastful and maybe even arrogant, In private, he was quiet, and he was meek, and he was humble. When he was in public, he put on a show. When he was in private, he was just an incredibly nice human being. The apostles were arguing. Who's the greatest? Well, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Well, I'll tell you why I'm the greatest. Oh, yeah? Well, your mother wears army boots. Hey, guys, what were you talking about when we were walking here? And they clammed up. If you have brothers or sisters, you know about the experience that I'm about to tell you. There, there were times when you and your one of your siblings were talking with each other and you were arguing and you, and you were trying to keep the argument quiet because you did not want dad or mom to hear first that you were arguing and secondly what you're arguing about. Chances are pretty good. It had to do with whose responsibility it was to do a particular chore. Or who had to do something first before the other one had to do it because it was something distasteful. And you did not want dad or mom to know what you were arguing about, so you just clammed up. But dad or mom could tell you were arguing. What were you arguing about? 
I wasn't arguing. Would you come here, Wyatt? Can you climb up there, please? Please, just sit down. sit down. Face the crowd. Face the crowd. Face the crowd. You want to receive Jesus? Not, not you. Them. That was a good answer, though. You all want to receive Jesus? This is the way you do it. This is the way you do it. You know what? In our society, we really devalue children and we devalue seniors. They are the two groups of people who most need to be served. And we don't like to serve. We like to be served. You want to receive Jesus? Thank you, Wyatt. <laughs> I know. Didn't embarrass you? Okay. You just weren't thinking that you were going to be a sermon illustration, were you? And most people aren't ready for that. Can you serve? You know what the argument about being the greatest is? It's about who gets to have their way. Who gets to be boss? Who gets to be called and who gets to call the shots? Who gets to be seen as most important? And Jesus said, the real thing is not to be seen. It is to see. The real thing is not to be heard. It is to hear. The real thing is not to be loved. It is to love. And often, the people that we are most called to see and to hear and to serve and to love are people we'd rather not see and hear and serve and love. I would love to take a shot at the apostles for the argument that they were having. 
I would love to. But what convicts me is the knowledge that if I had been one of the twelve, I'd have been the guy with the biggest mouth crying out, I am the greatest. Let's look at another misunderstanding, shall we? John said to him, now John, mind you, is Jesus' best friend. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Don't stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. See, you got Holy Childhood, Roman Catholic Church. You got Purposed, which is a Baptist church. You got St. John's United Church of Christ. You got Bethel United Methodist Church. You got First Baptist Church. You have uh, Mercy's Door, which is another Baptist. We got three Baptist churches. We got a lot of Baptists in town. It is just possible that the Baptists are, are, are having a real uh, competition against the Roman Catholics. You got St. Martin of Tours, Evangelical Lutheran Church. You got First Assembly of God. You got Cross Point Christian Church. I say we go knocking on doors and shut down all these other churches. What do you think? I mean, let's get a big crowd in here, right? Let's just kind of take over. Let's go around and... Isn't that silly? Friday night, I had a conversation with a funeral director. We were, we were talking about an hour before the funeral began, and we were talking about the, the relationships we'd had with each other and with other members of the clergy in O'Fallon, because I, I, I preached there for 16 and a half years, a long time. And um, we, we were talking about just getting acquainted. I said, you know, I've always enjoyed participating in the ministerial associations in the communities wherever I've ministered. And Kurt Schildneck, the funeral director, was telling me that whenever a minister would begin ministry in town, he always goes around to visit them because he, he knows we're going to be working together. We need to establish a good relationship. And he doesn't want the minister to not know him, and he wants to know kind of where the minister's coming from. And he told me that during the time that I was ministering at Central Christian Church in O'Fallon, another minister 
moved into town to uh, lead one of the other congregations. Kurt went to meet this fellow. Now, Kurt had grown up in the United Church of Christ, but had converted to Roman Catholicism. I'm not going to tell you what kind of church this other minister was from. It was not either of those. When Kurt sat down in the man's office and they began to talk, the man began to question some of the beliefs and some of the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. And he did it in a rather innocuous way, just very gentle, not really probing, just being a nice guy. And after Kurt admitted that he adhered to certain practices and that he held certain beliefs, this member of the clergy began to rip Roman Catholicism up one side and down the other and to tell Kurt that he was a sinner, he was lost, and he's going to hell because he did not belong to the same church that this man led. How do you think that that made Kurt Schildneck feel? You're right. It's going like this. Twenty-five years have passed since that event. And it is still one of the defining characteristics in Kurt's life. And it still makes him a little bit hesitant to go talk to a new minister who comes to town. Jesus, there was somebody going around casting out demons in your name. Now tell me, is casting out demons a good thing? Yeah. And is casting out demons in the name of Jesus a good thing? You would think, you would think, would you not? You know where I'm going with this. Jesus' apostles misunderstood the relationship with people who were not a part of their group. I don't agree with everything that's taught at the Roman Catholic Church, or the Lutheran Church, or the United Church of Christ, or the Methodist Church, or the Baptist Church, or the Assembly of God. Sometimes I don't even agree with myself. Seriously. Because I read things in the Scriptures that confront my misunderstandings, and I find if I'm going to be faithful to God and to His Word, I've got to change my mind. And I hate having to change my mind. Be nice to these other people. Be kind. They are not our enemies. They're our brothers and sisters. Treat them the way you're supposed to treat brothers and sisters, not the way you did it when you were a kid. Let's go on. Whoever causes one of these little ones, same conversation. Wyatt, I could have had you sitting up here the whole time, but I won't. 
Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Let's stop for a moment before I read any more. Let me just tell you that one of the punishments that the Roman Empire had for people who committed certain infractions is that they would find a large heavy object, tie it around the person's neck, and throw them into the sea to drown. I was about to say, let that sink in for a minute. But I didn't. <laughs> and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter, the, enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. And be at peace with one another. Jesus' apostles misunderstood the awfulness of sin, the certainty of purification, and the absolute necessity of faithfulness to Jesus. It's just kind of hard hard to handle the fact that in life there are some people, adults, some adults who make it their business to make little kids sin. I, I mean, really, who would do such a thing? Can't little kids get into enough sin on their own, Braxton? No, Bra Braxton, it's not so much that he sins. Braxton, Braxton, bra he does? Oh. Braxton, Braxton breaks easily. And Braxton breaks other things easily. Is it true? Who would want to make him sin. Don't you raise your hand. Okay, good answer. How awful is sin? Sin is so awful that not only should you not cause other people to sin, which happens often enough, 
You ought to hate it so much that you want to get it out of your life regardless of the cost. Now, I know that Jesus was exaggerating here about cutting off hands, cutting off feet, plucking out eyes, all that kind of stuff. But the simple fact is that you and I never regard our sin, our own sin, as being all that sinful. I'll take that back. Sometimes we do. In the dead of night, when nobody else knows that we are awake, and Satan creeps his way into our heads and starts telling us about how evil we are and that there is no possibility that God could love us. And even if He could, there's no way that He would love us. And so you just may as well hang it up. You are one of those who's going into hell where the worm doesn't die and the fire can't be quenched. But the vast majority of the time, the vast majority of the time, we don't tend to see our sin as being all that bad. We really misunderstand. Can we not see that any one sin was enough to separate us forever from God and His love. You didn't have to count up a number of sins. When Paul writes to the church at Rome, to people who are already Christians, he says, for the wages of sin, not sins, sin is death. It only takes one. And I know I've committed more than one. I think that, that one of the tough things about temptation is that temptation always looks so good and so fun. I have never been tempted to do anything that didn't seem like it was going to be fun. I've never been tempted to do anything that just on the face of it turned me off. No, my problem is that everything that the devil brings to smack me in the face looks like a lot of fun. <laughs> And what I simply must do in those moments is to remind myself that would kill me. I'd rather lose a hand than to follow Him. I'd rather lose a foot than to follow the devil. I'd rather lose an eye than to follow the devil. Because where he leads, where he leads will cost me my life. And I'm not talking about this body. I'm talking about the part of me that God meant to live 
forever. And that's my soul. On purification, you want to follow Jesus? You're going to get purified. And I got to tell you, purification is not fun. He says, everyone will be salted with fire. Read something interesting a few weeks back, and the, the person who wrote it down did not give details about names and places, but some ladies were in a Bible study, and they were going through the book of Malachi, and they got into the third chapter, and they read the third verse where it talks about how God will sit as a refiner's fire and purify the Levites as you would silver. And they wanted to know, these ladies did, what it means to refine the metal so that the silver looks pretty. And one of them volunteered to go find a refiner, a jeweler. And she did. And she did not tell him what it was she was up to, why she wanted to, to watch him work. She just said, I want to know more about what it's like for you to refine silver. So he welcomed her. And she sat there and watched as he took a lump of, of silver in its roughest form after it had been removed from the rocks. And as he held it over a fire... Because this is how you refine silver. You hold it over a fire. And as he worked, he told the woman, you have to be very careful about this because there is one perfect moment when the silver is the, the way that it's supposed to be, when it's refined, when you have removed all the other impurities and right before other impurities would sneak in. You see, if you leave the metal over the fire just an instant too long, it ruins the silver. So she asked, so how do you know when you've reached that one perfect moment when the silver is what it ought to be. And he said, oh, that's easy. When I can see my face in the reflection. Do you know how God knows when you have been refined? When he sees his face in you. And once he has you there, once he has you there, it is up to you to remain faithful to the end. If I were one of the apostles, all of this would have been painful. All of this would have been so uncomfortable for me. I would have been thinking about whether or not I wanted to stick around for it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want Jesus to die. 
I wouldn't want to have to change my attitude toward the people around me, especially towards those kids, seniors, whoever it is you don't like. Whoever it is you don't want to serve. You need to change your attitude. That's the very group of people you need to serve. That's the very group of people God made you to serve. You need, Charlie, to change your attitudes about the people around you that may not wear exactly the same name you have, but they follow Jesus just as surely as you do. And you know what? You're going to have to get really serious about getting rid of the sin in your life. You're going to have to get really serious about not being a stumbling block to other people and making them sin. You're going to have to get really serious that you're going to have to stay in the fire until God sees His face in your life. And then you're just going to have to stick it out until the end. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you've been confronted enough for one day. Well, God, you see us. You know that if we had been there on that road with Jesus, we'd have been just like the apostles. And you know <clears throat> that as surely as they needed to be confronted, so do we. We don't like the fire, Lord. We want to jump out of it. But hold us there until you see yourself in us. And then, by your grace, give us the strength to let you be our face for the rest of our lives. And Lord... Thank you that you didn't give up on us. It's in Jesus' name that I ask it. Amen.